Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dean Seal. Hey, what's going on? Hey, Dean, and Haley Knoth. Hey, glad to be here. Guys, what have you been up to? Just been getting ready, you know, plugging through the end of Oscar season here. Uh, you know, watching all of the Oscar films now in this last month uh, that we have left. How about you guys? Same. I love <laughs> that you're doing that because I also feel like it's cramming season. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Dean, what have you seen this week that you thought was good? Uh, so it was a big movie weekend for me. I uh, used all three of the slots on my AMC uh, Stubbs. What's it called, Haley? I swear I've never got this I, I believe... Yeah, it's like AMC Stubbs, and it means you're an A-list member. Right. Yeah. So I, <laughs> of course, an A-list member. That's I. It really, it's good for my inflated sense of self. Um, I you can watch <laughs> three movies in a week. So I went and saw uh, West Side Story, Belfast, and the classic Sing Two, which somehow was snubbed for a Best Picture nomination. I don't <laughs> wow. Know what so okay, a children's well, movie. Yeah. Very importantly, Dean, you can't tell me anything because. I have seen several of the Best Picture nominees already just, you know, through the year. But I do this thing where I do a movie marathon Oscar weekend with my girlfriends. Right. So yeah. I am trying to avoid seeing the last ones that I haven't seen to save them so that, you know, we could do it together. Smart, uh, communal, smart. Communal movie It's a good watching. strategy. Um, that's, yeah, that's so, way to do it. Yeah. I mean, it does make it really tough for somebody like me that really loves movies, though, because these conversations come up every year and people are like, Amber, what do you think about so-and-so? And I'm like, I'm saving it. We can't have this conversation. We can't talk about it. Yeah, everyone needs to be on your schedule for this, I see. Yeah, yeah. Haley, have you seen any of the uh, Best Picture nominees that uh, you feel like were real standouts? I've seen a few. Um, I'm more, I just saw The Batman the other night. So I've got that more on my brain. Oh, sure. Many, many hot takes. Um, no spoilers, of course. But I saw it on International Women's Day and I was just like, Subversive. You know, <laughs> I, I wasn't fully prepared to see Robert Pattinson like unnecessarily save Zoe Kravitz as many times as oh, sure. that happened. Yeah. Maybe not the most empowering pick for that. Day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we don't have any more movies to talk about in today's show because we do have a lot of other stuff to get to. This one's going to be an all host show. We've got a little Elon Musk action that we're going to get to with you, Dean. And then Haley and I are going to take point on sort of explaining the somewhat maybe unexpected overlap of the war in Ukraine with the U.S. legal system. So there are things to talk about that are squarely within our Law 360 realm. And that's such a fraught and ongoing conflict that we wanted to, to lay the groundwork about what's happening here. Yeah, no, I, I, it's going to be really important that we get into that discussion. But you know, before we before we talk about this terrifying humanitarian crisis playing out, I wanted to talk, like you said, about Elon Musk, the techno king of Tesla, the master of memes and frequent online mega troll, who also happens to be the richest man in the world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you groan, Haley, but I I do find these stories very interesting. So, what's he up to, Dean? So for years, the Tesla CEO has been engaged in this very public feud with the Securities and Exchange Commission, largely over his ability to use Twitter. And on Tuesday, that feud escalated when Musk motioned for a federal judge to terminate a settlement agreement that he had made with the SEC back in 2018. Now, you guys might remember this deal famously required Musk to have his tweets pre-cleared by a securities attorney at Tesla to ensure that they didn't implicate securities laws. I love that. 
<laughs> right. Well, according to Musk, the agency has been using that agreement ever since to harass him and Tesla with, quote, endless unfounded investigations. Musk is saying that the SEC is targeting him because he's a frequent critic of the agency and the federal government. He says the scrutiny is an attempt to trample on his First Amendment right to free speech. Of course he says that. Um, I remember this a little fondly as a news story because it did seem to have so many things that are just so interesting. But let's let's roll it back a little. Give us sort of the groundwork for how we got here. What's he talking about with the settlement? What happened? Sure. So the origin story of all of this is that back in August 2018, Musk tweeted out that he had secured funding and investor support to take Tesla private at $420 per share. Tesla stock was trading below at that time. It's, of course, exploded since. But after his tweet, its share price jumped about 6%. But then weeks later, Musk reversed and said that Tesla would remain a public company, causing shares to plunge about 15% below where they had been before he'd ever tweeted about having this funding secured. Investors quickly sued Tesla for allegedly misleading them. And in September of 2018, the SEC did the same, alleging that Musk hadn't actually secured any funding and made the deal seem more finalized than it was. And importantly, had picked that $420 figure as a weed joke for his future baby mama Grimes. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, sure. That's probably the part that a lot of people are remembering from this little dust up. But um, in all of this, Musk and Tesla eventually agreed to settle the SEC's claims by each paying $20 million and by signing an agreement under which Musk was going to step down as board chairman and have his tweets vetted by a company attorney. I'm so passionate about this. I have so many more questions about what's happened since then. <laughs> but I I assume, you know, that was not the end of this saga. No, definitely not. So tensions remained pretty high between the two for months after that deal was reached, particularly after the SEC accused Musk of violating the deal by tweeting about Tesla's production estimates on a new vehicle. And that led the sides to revise the settlement agreement in the spring of 2019 with more specific language. But in the years since then, Musk has continued to heckle the SEC online. And the SEC has continued to subpoena the company, sometimes based on whether it's complying with that settlement agreement from 2018. But things really took a turn last fall when Musk tweeted out a poll to his many millions of followers asking if he should sell off 10% of his own Tesla equity. We've since come to learn that the SEC, that the poll prompted another subpoena from the SEC about this tweet vetting agreement. You know, you hear a lot about Twitter beefs. You don't expect them to really just be like Elon Musk tweets, the SEC, right. you know, investigates. Like, that's not really what you think of. Yeah. So is this all the same agreement we're talking about him trying to terminate now? Like, where are we at this point? It's the very same. So last month, Musk and Tesla both asked the federal judge presiding over their SEC cases to hold a conference over their concerns that the agency has weaponized the settlement agreement. The judge declined, saying she wasn't really sure what Tesla and Musk were looking for, what kind of outcome they were hoping to get. And that leads us to Tuesday. So now Musk's request is really, really unusual. Typically, it's the SEC that might look to kill a settlement agreement because the defendant isn't abiding by the terms of that deal. But Musk is saying that the SEC has been abusing this agreement and that it needs to either be scrapped or at least modified to stop the agency from coming after him and Tesla over his tweets. Uh, Now, my favorite part is that the request came with an affidavit signed by Musk in which he says that he was forced into signing this agreement back in 2018 to ensure, quote, the immediate survival of Tesla. And that essentially the SEC's allegations were bunk anyway. He says that he did have funding secured for a take private that he did have investor support, and that he had never and would never lie to shareholders. Okay, uh, that's pretty bold claims at this 
point, right? I mean, you think this is all said and done and now he's mad about it again and he's sort of reversing course on what's been said before. What's going to happen next? What, what are we anticipating? Right. So, I mean, now the courts are back involved and the judge in this case has ordered the SEC to respond to Musk's claims and his request by March 22nd. So we will be getting a rebuttal from the agency sometime soon. Most experts I've spoken to say that this request probably isn't going to go anywhere. You know, people are forced, so to speak, into SEC settlements all the time just because they, you know, that means that they settle to avoid the protracted litigation involved and all the costs, even if they don't necessarily love the idea. And it's also hard to make the case that the SEC is acting outside of its authority by investigating Tesla based on terms that the company and Musk agreed to. So that's pretty normal. But Right. Like, does anybody out there feel like they aren't forced in some way? Nobody likes a settlement with the SEC. Right. This doesn't really, in terms of process, this isn't necessarily unusual. But the thing is, this is not a normal situation in any way. And even this agreement at the core of it about vetting tweets, that's not normal either. You know, this is the top regulator of Wall Street having to deal with one of the most influential market movers ever. And one who's always kind of blurring the lines in his tweets between being a mouthpiece for Tesla and just being Elon Musk and saying whatever it is he wants to say. So nobody, it's not super clear exactly what's going to happen next, but I cannot wait to find out. topic today, we want to discuss the war in Ukraine. There's obviously an enormous human toll, a lot of geopolitical fallout that started and will continue. But we thought it would be good to talk about it from our area of expertise and some of the ways the law and the legal system in the United States is intersecting with the war. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in how the U.S. legal apparatus has involvement here. What, what exactly are we talking about? There's a few elements that we'll talk about today, but I can kick us off with a big one out of the Department of Justice. Just after Russia invaded Ukraine, the Biden administration issued sweeping sanctions against Russia. To give some teeth to those sanctions, the Department of Justice unveiled a task force of more than a dozen attorneys to hunt for violators and also seize the assets of Russian oligarchs. Tell us a little bit more about this task force. Well, let's begin with the task force has a cool name. It's Task Force Klepto capture. Nice. So I kind of wow. like that. So the aim of this task force is to enforce this extraordinary group of sanctions and a bunch of export controls and related things so that they will, in fact, actually isolate the Kremlin from global markets and impose what the DOJ says is, quote, serious costs for this unjustified act of war. The task force will be run out of the deputy AG's office. It includes prosecutors, agents, analysts from across DOJ, and their expertise is pretty spot on for this. It's things like sanctions, anti-corruption, national security. It's kind of they've collected the best of the best to fit into this group. The creation of the task force also drives home that there will be no grace period for compliance with these global sanctions. Attorney General Merrick Garland had this to say about the entire group. We will leave no stone unturned in our efforts to investigate, arrest, and prosecute those whose criminal acts enable the Russian government to continue this unjust war. Let me be clear. If you violate our laws, we will hold you accountable. So I'm obviously no expert here, but this seems like a very quick movement to enforce sanctions. Is this unusual? 
It is definitely unusual to move this fast. So a former DOJ official told Law 360 that the government rarely enforces new sanctions immediately. It's usually a a grace period, an adjustment period, if you will, between when they're announced and when enforcement really ramps up. That's not at all what they're doing here. By creating this task force and coming out so stridently, they are saying, like, we're going to do this immediately. So that is unusual. Yeah, it's it's kind of jarring to see this kind of urgency, um, but makes sense in this situation. Now, do we know who's actually heading up this task force? Anybody that we know from the legal community? Yeah, so it's a federal prosecutor in New York City, Andrew Adams. He's taking the lead. He's the co-chief of the Money Laundering and Transnational Criminal Enterprises Unit, of the Southern District of New York. Before I even tell you anything about his background, you kind of see just from that title why he was selected. It's, it's It feels almost too spot on. It's exactly what I would have expected him to do. Right. It almost feels like he's been doing this already or you know, <laughs> yeah, got this Kind of, right? Yeah. So the Southern District of New York unit that he's co-chief of pursues those who promote criminal activity through money laundering or other illicit finance. Sounds to me like that's basically the same things he's going to be looking for as this task force to enforce the sanctions moves forward. And it's exactly the type of stuff that's alleged against Russian oligarchs, which they are actively targeting. A few of Adam's recent cases, just to get a sense of who he is, he's a member of a team that's currently prosecuting a veterinarian and horse trainers for administering performance-enhancing drugs to racehorses. It was like a ring around that because there's a lot of money in horse racing. That could be a whole another episode, but all right. Yeah, yeah wow. Interesting, right? <laughs> and last year, he worked on the prosecution of a Colombian man who laundered money and paid bribes to Brazilian politicians, so very high-level stuff there. Adams was also involved in a case against a Russian man who allegedly led a violent criminal enterprise that was engaged in all sorts of stuff like extortion, theft, trafficking in stolen goods, fraud. In that case, the man was sentenced to 45 years in prison in order to pay over two and a half million dollars. So real success there. And basically, Adams has this long track record of prosecuting international organized crime. So we'll see if he can bring those exact same skills to bear enforcing sanctions and targeting oligarchs. Very interesting. So I want to turn now to how the legal industry is reacting to the war. Um, And on the brighter side of things, a number of law firms are offering legal aid in support of Ukraine in the form of pro bono work um, and charitable donations. Some are even using offices in Poland to help refugees. Yeah, well, that is great. I mean, who are we talking about here? What kind of firms? Yeah, more than a dozen law firms have told Law360 that they're donating funds or launching pro bono projects. Um, Those include Aiken Gump, Morrison and Forster, Steptoe and Johnson, Millbank, and Oric. And a few specific examples here. um, Miller Canfield LLP said it's using its three offices in Poland to take calls from individuals and companies seeking legal advice and assistance for newly arriving refugees. The firm said, uh, quote, we are working with our network of trusted attorneys in Ukraine and throughout Poland and the EU to provide pro bono assistance to refugees and to refer them to attorneys who can help with their specific needs. Um, Barry Appleman and Leiden LLP said it has an internal working group running reports and analysis on the conflict. It's using its information platform, which is called Advisor, to provide updates to clients in Ukraine and elsewhere. And also Norton Rose is working on programs to help Ukrainians relocate, including by signing up its lawyers for a project where 
attorneys are basically listed in a database and connected with individuals who are trying to either get into the U.S. or stay in the U.S. if they're already here. Those are all really good efforts. And I think it's interesting that a lot of what you highlighted relies on sort of global firms with a footprint where they're closer to where the refugees are actually are. Because as much as I think U.S. attorneys want to help, some of them have been a little confused about if they're needed. So this is a, a good sort of roadmap of what some of the biggest firms can do. And a lot of firms are um, donating to humanitarian relief organizations And some are matching what their attorneys and staff donate up to um, certain dollar amounts. The Morrison and Forster Foundation is donating just under $17,000 to the International Rescue Committee, which is on the ground in Poland helping displaced families. Um, The firm is also giving $15,000 to a project distributing medical equipment and supplies to hospitals in Ukraine. And then another $15,000 to an organization providing meals for displaced families. Um, On top of that, Auric is establishing its own Ukraine relief fund, and that will start off with a $25,000 contribution that it says it's going to split between the International Rescue Committee and United Help Ukraine. Um, And Norton Rose also said last week that it has raised more than $300,000 so far for Ukrainian relief organizations, with the bulk of that going towards Save the Children for Ukraine. Uh, Aiken Gump and Steptoe and Johnson have also told Law360 that they have donation plans or matching programs. Well, that all sounds great, but I mean, I, I guess I've got still have you know sanctions on the brain, and that leads me to wonder: what about firms with Russian clients? Are are they going to be dropping them, or at least maybe rethinking those relationships a little bit? Yep, they are doing exactly that. So several international firms have said that they are reviewing and cutting ties with at least some of their Russian clients. Baker McKenzie. Venable and Sidley all said they are evaluating their Russian portfolios. Allen and Overy said it will, quote, stop all Russia-linked work that goes against our values. And Norton Rose said it would not be accepting any further instructions from businesses, entities, or individuals connected with the current Russian regime. Um, And that, they specified, doesn't matter if they're actually sanctioned or not, they're just cutting it all off. And Norton Rose is also closing its Moscow office, which had more than 50 lawyers and staff. That's actually really interesting because a lot of firms with a presence in Russia are having to face the question of, do they leave an office open? Do they close it? How do they handle that? Are there other firms that have announced what their plans are going to be? There are. um, There's a growing list of international firms that have announced departures from Russia, um, including Eversheds, Sutherland, Latham, um, and Morgan Lewis. Aiken Gump, Squire Patton Boggs, and Freshfields all said that they were at least closing offices in Moscow. Um, and as of Wednesday, nine big law firms in total have left Russia since it invaded Ukraine. Freshfields in particular acknowledged that it had a long history in the country. It's been there for 30 years. In a statement Wednesday, the firm said, We are very conscious of the impact this news will have on our valued colleagues in Russia. However, in light of the Russian government's actions in Ukraine and the clear stance we have taken on Russia-related work, we believe that this is the right course of action. Um, Morgan Lewis said it had been helping its Moscow lawyers relocate. So many of those lawyers will continue working for the firm in other jurisdictions. So that's good. Um, And interestingly, Aiken Gump's founder, Robert Strauss, was the last U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union and the first U.S. ambassador to the Russian Federation. So that 
firm really has some some serious Russia ties there. But nevertheless, they said they would at least be suspending Moscow operations. And experts say more departures are probably on the horizon. So we'll have to keep an eye on it. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty fascinating because I, I have to imagine there's like a lot of money tied up in these relationships. So these are firms saying pretty deliberately, like saying no to money, which is not something we see big law doing all that frequently. An excellent point. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to keep following. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Haley, I know you have one for us today. I do. I do. Um, I'm very excited. I'm always happy to steer any given conversation into a ghost story territory. Um, so we have discussed in the past that we're all, for the most part, fairly skeptical when it comes to ghosts, although we you know, love ghost stories. But I have a different question for you both today. If ghosts are real... Would you ever want to actually see one? I love this question. I'd like to start by saying that most shows, lesser shows, would have their ghost segment in like October. But because you like ghosts and I like talking about ghosts, we are in fact kindred spirits, pun intended. So nice. happy to talk about it anytime. My answer to do I want to see a ghost is what are we talking? Benevolent, kind ghost that's going to protect me from something in the world? Or are we talking like spirit from the movie insidious from the other side it makes a big mm. difference so I, I guess i'm gonna say that i don't want to meet any ghosts just because i've always felt deep to my core that if i was in a scary movie i'd be like among the first to die i just always <laughs> I, I don't know i fit like a certain archetype i think of like skeptic ghost skeptic who gets killed by ghosts really early sure. So, <laughs> um, sure so yeah so no no for me i i feel similarly i also don't want to see one. I think even a nice one is too much for me to, my brain would just shut down in that moment. But um, if anyone out there is uh, pro being haunted, <laughs> I found a fun list of haunted courthouses from the American Bar Association Journal. So let's get into some of these. Uh, Amber, you said you actually found that one of them is just a couple towns over from you. Yeah. So, you know, I bring the New Jersey power here on the show and um, I looked at the list intentionally looking for either my home state of West Virginia or my beloved state that I live in now, New Jersey, and immediately found one from Jersey. So let's get into it. Um, I would like you to, you know, raise your flashlights below your chin, gather around the virtual campfire. I'm going to tell you a Garden State ghost story. Have you ever heard of a woman named Hannah Caldwell? No. No. Great. You're going to love her story then. <laughs> so think back to the American Revolution. This is uh, around the time when the Continental Congress actually issued a call to arms to American colonists. There was a reverend named James Caldwell. He lived in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, and he agreed to serve as a chaplain of a regiment of soldiers. And he actively spoke out against the British, which is pretty unusual for members of the clergy. Um, British didn't love this preacher for independence. Um, it was so bad that they at times had put a price on his head. The war did have a lot of battles in New Jersey. And in 1780, troops were advancing toward the farm where the reverend lived with his wife, Hannah, and their children. What happened next is a little bit debated, but the account that I believe is the one I'll tell you. So 
Based on witness testimony from the time, a soldier wearing a red coat left the road near the house, came up to the window. Hannah's young son, Elias, kept peeking out the windows of the house to see the soldiers because it was a lot of you know, excitement for a little boy. And when Hannah went to move him from the windows because she was worried he'd get hurt, a soldier fired his musket and killed her. This proved to be a big turning point in New Jersey. After learning about Hannah's death, the reverend um, sort of spread the word far and wide to all the men in the area. And the reaction was so swift that the farmers throughout the countryside who'd been pretty reluctant to take up arms actually rallied to join the revolutionary forces against the British. So in some ways, she's lauded as a bit of a martyr for the revolutionary cause. So that's a very cool story, historically speaking. But we're here for the ghost. So... Could you yeah. uh, could you I'll, take us back, I back can get to the us, spooky? I can get us to the ghost. So that sets the groundwork about what happened to departed Hannah. She was buried in Elizabethtown, which is now just called Elizabeth, New Jersey. And the, the um, cemetery is right next door to the Union County Courthouse. She's alleged to haunt the corridors. She's been seen dressed in all white all around the courthouse. People have seen her on the marble staircases. They've seen her in elevators, walking down corridors. The sci-fi channel that show Ghost Hunters even went to investigate in 2009. Uh, they love a spooky setting, and Spooky Courthouse is pretty good for that show. So they talked to courthouse workers who'd spotted her, and they tried to get a look at Hannah themselves. One final note for this story, because this is the question I always wonder, why is Hannah still a ghost, and why is she wandering around this courthouse? And I have an idea. I don't think she likes the seal of Union County. Because on it, her murder is depicted. Oh, dear. I did include in the show notes, which our listeners can't see, but I might put it on Twitter, uh, the seal of Union County for you guys to see it. Here's what it looks like. It shows a woman in white standing outside of her home while a British redcoat points a gun at her. (laughs) In my estimation, Hannah doesn't like it. And she's at that courthouse trying to get somebody to change that seal. Wait, I, I got it. Did you find this explanation on Reddit or is this just a full on Amber theory? Uh, I mean, the explanation <laughs> for why Hannah's mad is a little bit of an Amber theory, although I'm sure others agree with me. But it is true that that is her murder being depicted on the seal because she was seen as a turning point in the Revolutionary War. And so that's why it's on the county seal. Gotcha. Don't know if I would want to be memorialized in that way. Uh. <laughs> uh, no, it's it doesn't seem great to me. Um, so, Haley, that's my New Jersey one. So that was my favorite from this list. But before we go, do you want to tick off maybe one or two other ones that were sort of fun about maybe you're not in New Jersey, but you're still a lawyer who wants to go to a haunted courthouse? Where do you go? Yes. So there are a few other great ones in this list. One of my favorites is in Wayne County, Ohio. There is allegedly a ghost um, that courthouse employees call the lady in pink which gotta love these ghosts that are just lady in right insert color Hannah's lady in white this one can be lady in pink sure yeah yeah um and so they actually I guess have footage from a security camera capturing this ghost um and that was shared by a local news station uh which talked to common pleas court judge Mark Wiest about it and the judge said that he's a skeptic but he gave this fantastic quote about what he'd do if he did see the lady in pink quote I'd run like hell because even though I'm a non-believer, I'm not taking any chances. Smart guy. <laughs> I know. I think that kind of sums up me, my and Dean's position <laughs> on seeing a ghost. And then the last one that I'll share with you 
is actually um, Supreme Court Justice Roger B. Taney, who was the author of the infamous Dred Scott decision, supposedly haunts the Mitchell Courthouse in Baltimore. This is absolutely bonkers to me. One lawyer said that he had an experience that scared him so much that he walked out of the courtroom in the middle of a proceeding. I wonder how that goes over before you tell the rest of the story, Haley. I wonder how that goes over with the judge presiding. If they're like, oh, yeah, we see the ghost here all the time. Like, we get it. Or if they're like, nope, this is way out of order. <laughs> or both. They're like, this is way out of order because we see this thing all the time. <laughs> oh, right. It's so commonplace. You should know the ghost is here. Yeah, the judge actually didn't care. <laughs> that's That's the most bonkers part to me. She also believes that Justice Taney is haunting the courthouse. She said she'd had her own experiences with his ghost. And she also speculates that he um, specifically doesn't like her because he's racist and she's a descendant of slaves. So she's saying he probably isn't happy that she's a judge there. We started this conversation with, would you want to meet ghosts? And now (laughs) through the course of the conversation, I have my definitive answer. I would like to meet Hannah and try to get that seal changed for her. <laughs> I have zero interest in, in meeting Justice Tanny. He can just leave that courthouse and leave the rest of us alone. Yeah, I'm just going to say it here now. I think Jordan Peele needs to write a movie about the oh, racist yeah. ghost haunting her courthouse. That's Ooh. pretty good. I would watch that. I would Very definitely watch that. <laughs> well, thanks for bringing these, Haley. Um, hope you guys liked my New Jersey addition to this list. Um, Always. I think uh, everybody should bookmark this episode and also play it back uh, around Halloween because this is going to be great content throughout the year. Thanks a lot for being with me, guys. And we also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, Nick Miscavige, Jack Queen, and Rachel Ribito. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review where you're listening. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.